1: Do you experience moments of self-doubt about your achievements? Do you think everyone else knows more than you do? Do you have a hard time seeing the value in the services you provide? Imposter syndrome is that little voice in your head that casts doubt and makes you feel like you're not good enough. It can stop you from moving forward and miss out on opportunities. Joining us today to discuss strategies to navigate the feelings of inadequacy is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One-Person Business, and tiny business, Big Money. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. Her work has appeared on CNBC and in Fortune, Money, Forbes, and many other publications. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Joan. It's always so great to talk with you.
1: I feel the same way, Elaine, because you are such a wealth of... Knowledge and you know, you and I had a conversation not too long ago, which led up to us doing this interview, and it was about imposter syndrome and how oftentimes we as entrepreneurs may have that feeling like we don't belong doing what we're doing, and and if we're doing it, maybe we're not as good as someone else. And so, why do you think this occurs? Why does imposter syndrome creep into our minds?
2: One reason, Joan, I think is because being an entrepreneur is a leap for many people. We're told that we should be employees by our parents, by our teachers, basically by all of society as we're growing up. And so simply saying that you want to run a business is an act of courage, and it seems a little defiant. So I think people have a tendency to say, hey, do I deserve to call myself an entrepreneur? It's kind of like being a writer. People feel like, you know, have I written enough to really call myself a writer? Or have I painted enough paintings to call myself a painter? there's not really a set credential. So when there is no credential, you can't go out and say, oh, I got a degree in whatever. So therefore, I am an entrepreneur. Um, So I think that is one reason it holds people back.
1: And I think it's really important for all of us as entrepreneurs to do the internal work on ourselves. Because if we're feeling inadequate and and we lack self-esteem, we're really going to have a challenge putting ourselves out there, being the so-called expert in our field.
2: You're so right about that. I think many of us have internalized the negative voices of people who criticized us in the past. For some reason, one negative voice can outweigh hundreds of positive voices. So one of the most important things for future and current entrepreneurs to do is to really interrogate and challenge those voices and ask yourself if they are realistic. Just because for instance, one boss didn't like one project you did, does that mean you're completely incompetent? Probably not, but it may have melt, made you feel that way at the time. So part of it is doing that internal work and, and seeing if what you believe is actually realistic. Um, a good way to challenge it is to get real world feedback when you uh, put your work out there, if customers are happy with it, ask them for a testimonial or ask them for feedback on it and see what they say. That that will often give entrepreneurs confidence.
1: It's been reported that entrepreneurs and freelance consultants are more susceptible to imposter syndrome because they rely on self-confidence to make a living and they don't have the support network to help them when these moments arise, you know we as entrepreneurs tend to work within this bubble. We're really removed from the type of support that can help us get through that. Do you agree with that assessment from what you've seen? Yes, and I
2: think it's it's very telling that in my book Tiny Business Big Money forty five percent of the entrepreneurs who are at seven figures belong to an entrepreneurship group, and thirty seven percent have a business coach. It's important to have positive reinforcement with whatever you do. And if you're living in an area where most people have traditional jobs, you're not going to get much reinforcement for the way that you're choosing to live. Entrepreneurship is a type of career, but it's also a lifestyle because when you don't have a steady paycheck coming in every week, two weeks, months, you have to manage your money differently you may be less inclined to do things like put a big vacation on a credit card because you know you're going to have to hustle up the work to pay for it, where someone in a corporate job knows that their paycheck is coming and they can chip away at it. So you'll have to make different decisions from other people. And at times it can be lonely and alienating. If you're around other people who are pursuing their dream as entrepreneurs, you'll be able to stick with it more uh, in in those circumstances. I think a big problem that
1: comes from these feelings of inadequacy from allowing those thoughts to infiltrate your mind is when the time comes to price your services and someone says to you what do you charge for that I think that's the biggest issue that we have because I I know for myself sometimes I almost choke on my words when I'm trying to tell someone what I charge for a service all the people that you've interviewed how did they overcome that how were they able to own their pricing
2: way is through research. I believe if you're selling something new to you personally, for instance, when I branched out from writing articles for publication to ghostwriting books, I didn't have a good sense of exactly how much time it would take to do a book. And I did a couple of books with um, preliminary clients where I probably didn't price them appropriately because I really was guessing to some extent. Then at a certain point, I contacted other colleagues who were about the same level as I am in my career, and I asked them what they charge. And I find there are a lot of friendly competitors out there. They can't take on any more work than they already have, so they can be a good source of information. And then when someone asked me what my pricing is, I could say I charge the going rate for people at my level in this field and it's about this, you know, and, and of course it's a negotiating room depending on the parameters of the project. But for me, that was really helpful. I think for, for a lot of um, the entrepreneurs, there is an element of research. For instance, in my first book, The Million Dollar One-Person Business, I wrote about Brooklyn Inn, which is a direct-to-consumer brand that sells sheets um, with designs that they found men were requesting like plaid. Apparently, many sheets are made in prints that are more popular with women, like floral prints, for instance. And they went on the floor of big box stores. It's a husband and wife team that run the company. And they asked people what they were paying for sheets and what they would be willing to pay for sheets of a certain quality based on thread count, etc. And that was how they arrived at their pricing. Sometimes what's interesting is if you... Price your service too low. It will not sell as well. People will think the quality is lower. And that's what happened with um, Nomad Lane. It's a company that is run by Kish Fasnani and Vanessa Jaswani, a married couple. And they sell travel bags. initially, they priced them at $100. And then everybody um, who was buying them said they were underpricing them. And when they doubled them to $200, they did better. Um, The same thing happened, there's another um, entrepreneur in tiny business, Big Money, who runs Insolia, which sells inserts for high heels, and she went to a pricing seminar, which is another strategy to get your pricing right, and she was undercharging for them, and when she doubled the price, they started selling better, people equate price with quality, so it's important to understand how much people are currently paying for something that's of high quality. And that goes not just for a product, but a service. For instance, if you're a blogger, there may be people in some parts of the world that can charge $10 for a blog because the cost of living is a fraction of what it is in the U.S. But if you're in the U.S. and a blog goes for X amount and you're charging much less, people may wonder, why are you not as good of a writer? So I think it's important to understand that there's a psychology of pricing. There's actually a really great author named Herman Simon who has written a number of books on pricing. Um, one of them is called Confessions of a Pricing Man and he runs the whole pricing consultancy in Germany and uh, has studied pricing around the world. So if you want to learn more about it, that is a really good source of information.
1: But Aline, that's really a, a great point that you make because when you do your research and you make it based on factual information, you remove yourself from the equation. And and the reason I I wanted to bring this up, there are so many entrepreneurs that I know, who do everything right, you know, they they have the experience, they build the company, but when it comes to pricing for their services, they get stuck. And so I I think that was really wonderful advice to do your homework, do your research and remove the emotion from it. It's
2: important to price things correctly, because of sustainability. If you price things too low, what will happen is you won't be there anymore in business. You'll have to get a job, and then you won't be able to help your customers. So when you find yourself faltering, it's important to think about how can I do this profitably? You don't want to overcharge people, but if you're undercharging, how long will you really be able to stay in business unless someone else is completely subsidizing you, which most of us don't have? you really need to price things so that you can be there to serve your customers. And they will want you to price things appropriately. They don't want to cheat you or, or underpay you. The good customers don't because they'll want to work with you again. And I think that's an important thing to remind yourself of your, of no, it's like your own oxygen mask. You're not of any help to anyone else. If you're, you're going out of business. And
1: the interesting thing about imposter syndrome Every person that I've interviewed who's very successful has said at one point or another, he or she has felt the same way. But sometimes when we're feeling that way, we think we're the only ones. A a lot of the people that you've interviewed who are very successful in their businesses, did they go through
2: this as well? It comes up very frequently when when I speak with them. There's There's always that fake it till you make it moment. I think that's what every entrepreneur realizes. When you're growing professionally and you're growing as an entrepreneur, you're going to find yourself in situations where you feel a little bit in over your head. It's like you're in the deep end of the swimming pool and you have no idea how you got there or how you're going to stay afloat, but somehow they always do. Um, And that's a sign of growth. So if you look at that feeling as a sign that you're really challenging yourself, I think it's a way to get through You don't want to push yourself to the point where you're about to have a nervous breakdown from it because <laughs> that's too hard. But but that little nudge to yourself to, to challenge yourself is a good thing. I know um, James Taylor is a public speaker. He does keynote speeches. And a lot of times when he's developing a new speech, he's still working on it, practicing it with different rotary clubs. He'll start marketing it ahead of time um, before he's actually finished the speech, but he knows that he'll keep on practicing it until it's ready. So by the time if someone does decide to hire him to come and speak to their company, it will be ready by that time. But he has to market things in advance. So that's, that's another strategy is, is to make sure you're putting in the work to get to the point of proficiency that you need to be to achieve a big goal and that helps to take care of the imposter syndrome. I'm sure at the moment of closing the sale, when the speech isn't fully baked yet, there might be a little twinge of that. But he also knows that he will go out. He calls it the ham salad tour. He'll go to anywhere that will have him come speak to keep on working on that speech. So that that is a useful technique, I think, to put in the work, view it as a practice, but but set goals that you know you can eventually get to that aren't so far ahead of where you are right now in terms of your capabilities that you will fail. Part part of imposter syndrome is good. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you really can't handle it yet because then you will have a terrible sense of failure. And part of being an entrepreneur is self-knowledge of how much you can grow within a certain amount of time to get to where you want to be.
1: And that self-knowledge is so important, Elaine. I see a lot of people on social media. I I look at things with a marketing PR type of eye, and and I see some things that people are doing. And it just looks like they're throwing a lot of spaghetti on the wall, seeing what will stick. And Mm -hmm. they really (laughs) don't appear to have a sense of who they are as an entrepreneur. Do, Do you find that a lot? I
2: think there is a period in the beginning for every entrepreneur where they're trying to figure out what their niche is. For for the businesses I write about, success usually comes with defining a very narrow niche. But in the beginning, maybe you have several areas of interest and you're not sure how to narrow them down. I remember when I started my business 15 years ago, I was so happy to be a freelance writer because finally I could write stories for multiple publications. And if there was a story that the one publication I worked for didn't want it, because they weren't interested in that topic, I could still find a market for it. But what happened was I put myself out there saying, I write about entrepreneurship, careers, parenting, because I have four children, green living, because I'm interested in it, et cetera. And I think it's harder for people to pin you down when you have too many specialties. So I decided just through trial and error, the first couple of years of running my business, it was better to specialize in entrepreneurship. And sometimes those other interests would overlap, but it's hard to become so knowledgeable about the subtopics you're interested in that you can be competitive. So for instance, even though I'm a parent and I've raised four children, I'm really not up on the latest thinking on parenting in terms of what's being discussed in the media, what articles have been written already, who are the leading experts on parenting. I couldn't tell you those things. So I'm at a disadvantage relative to entrepreneurship where I'm completely immersed in it all the time. So I think with some of these folks that are throwing spaghetti at the wall, they're in that phase that I was at, but you can get out of it. Once you start to realize where can you be most competitive, what do you enjoy the most, what are you willing to spend extra time thinking, reading, learning about, What areas of your business do you enjoy? The people aspects the most, what are the most profitable? You'll start to figure those things out, and then those extra things will fall away. Um, But it is confusing, you're right. In the beginning, when someone isn't very well-defined as as an entrepreneur, it is hard for people to know if they should hire them or not.
1: Yeah, I I think what happens is, you become afraid that if you get too focused, you're going to miss out on markets that will bring you money, but it's actually the opposite that happens.
2: You know, it's kind of counterintuitive that being so niche-focused is the right way to go, but when you think about it, how many solopreneurs or owners of very small businesses can take on Amazon, for instance, if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. The ones that I have written about, that have been successful have had very narrow niches, and that's how they've succeeded. For instance, Rim Sports is a company that sells crossfit gear in colors aimed at women. They realized that there weren't a lot of, of um, brands that were targeting women with you know bright colors. Everything was pretty much in black, and there were a lot of women getting into this sport, and that's how they've been in business for several years. If they tried to take on all the CrossFit manufacturers in the country, they, they would never succeed because it's too big of a market. And I think everybody can benefit from that type of thinking. Where can you go really deep on something? And in this case, it was personal because Angie Raja, who um, co-founded the business with her husband, Colin, was doing it herself, and she hated the gear that was out there because of the colors. So she knew that there were other people like herself, and they did a lot of market research, and that was how they found their niche. Even Brooklyn, in which I mentioned the sheet company, there are a lot of sheet companies that know that the majority of linens are purchased by women, so they come out with a lot of prints that target women. And Brooklyn saw that, well, what about the guys that have to outfit their apartment or their house? they're not finding a lot of prints that they like and that was they went deep with that Um, so I I think there are a lot of lessons in that for anybody who has a limited budget because if you have more money then you can you can introduce a lot of different products or a lot of different services Um, but if you're small you won't be able to support all of those things it's better to just go high quality with one.
1: Elaine how do you think the past few years, all that we've been through, how has that impacted entrepreneurs and small business owners? Do you think we're coming out of it? Are we coming out of it differently?
2: It's very interesting, Joan. I was just thinking about this this morning, and I think for a long time, most of us were in a semi-funk, if not a full-blown funk, because we were cut off from so many of the things that we enjoy in life, like social connection, going to the gym you know, for our kids being able to go to school and see their friends. And then it was a slow transition out of pandemic mode. But now I see a lot of people getting a second wind. During that time, there was a lot of introspection and people were thinking about what really matters to me. Am I happy with my life? Uh, What am I going to do once the pandemic is over? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to see? What do I hope to accomplish? And we have a new appreciation all the freedoms we have back again, and I, I see a lot of people doing different things with their business than they were doing before. For instance, I wrote a story about Saul Orwell, who runs examine.com, and it's a site that sells reports about nutrients. and what he did during the pandemic was instead of organizing the site around vitamin D and vitamin C, he or- reorganized it around different health topics like heart disease, Uh, trying to get pregnant or different things like that so that people could find the nutritional information they needed for their problems. And he decided to scale up the business. He was one of the original million-dollar one-person businesses. For years, he ran the business with all contractors, and now he decided to hire employees. He wants to get to nine-figure revenue. He thought that he would have more of an impact by scaling up. Others have decided to double down and stay very boutique and have more time for their families or other things that they're interested in, charitable work. And that's been very interesting, but I think there's a new authenticity where people have really gotten to know themselves and what they want. And they're also so worn down, they can't keep up any pretenses or things that they feel they should do just for the sake of what other people think. I I think in a lot of cases, people were going to jobs that they didn't like and they felt like, okay, this is what a good... uh, person does, you know, who has a family and a house, they go to a job that they hate, they suck it up, they get on the train, they commute. And I think people got so worn out that if that was not serving them well, they said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a person too. I'm so tired of that. I have a toxic boss. I don't want to go on the train anymore. It takes up too much of my time. I never have time to work out. I never have time for my family. I'm going to make a change, even if it means making some financial sacrifices, Or I'm going to find a job where I can work from home and maybe have a side hustle. There are a lot of people who started side hustles during the pandemic. I think there was a big re-examination and also this phenomenon where it's almost like they just did a thousand push-ups and their arms are shaking. And they can't force themselves to do anything else that they don't want to do. So now what's happened is it's cleared space for them to do what's really true to them whatever it is without regard for what society thinks they should do or their parents think or other people that they feel are dictating to them what they should do they're doing what they really want to do
1: and that could be one of the biggest blessings that came out of a horrific time for all of us and um if you'd like to learn more about Elaine Pofelt and her work, you can visit ElainePofelt.com. And once again, Elaine's books are Million Dollar One-Person Business and Tiny Business, Big Money. Elaine, in about 30 seconds or less, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your best tip to help an entrepreneur or small business owner succeed?
2: Keep showing up, view your business the way you with a yoga practice, a martial arts practice. You never know what day... The miracle will come in your business if you don't show up for it. But if you do, it may just surprise you on the day you least expect
1: it. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. You are always such a wealth of information, and I look forward to the next time you'll come back on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Joan. It's always a pleasure to talk with
1: you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? and let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
1: An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity. Some can cause more harm than good. Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating, with listeners staying tuned in, or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash mediatraining. That's joanherman.com slash training. your health. Joining us today to talk about ways that you can heal your thyroid naturally is Dr. Emily Lipinski, a doctor of naturopathic medicine and author of the book Healing Your Thyroid Naturally. Welcome, Dr. Lipinski. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, let's begin by talking about the scope of thyroid disorders. How prevalent are thyroid issues and who are most likely to suffer?
4: They're becoming more and more prevalent. In fact, it's estimated that in North America now, about one in six women at some point in their life will develop some sort of thyroid dysfunction. And although thyroid disease does affect men, it's definitely more prevalent in women.
1: So you're saying that it's becoming more and more of a problem.
4: What are some of the major causes? Well, this is a really interesting question because a lot of people, the old way of thinking was that as uh, we age, specifically as women age, the thyroid gland, it's it's a hormone gland in the body located in the neck, that it just naturally stopped working as well. However, we know now that about 90% of the reason why people are developing hypothyroidism, slow functioning thyroid function is because of autoimmune disease. So when we're looking at the root cause of why, it's really because of this autoimmune disorder that's happening in people's bodies.
1: What are signs that something might be wrong?
4: First things you want to be looking out for is that key symptom of inability to, to lose weight. The thyroid gland is the master Uh, gland of your metabolism so it keeps your metabolic rate high and it also keeps your bowels moving so having sluggish bowels not being able to go to the bathroom as much as you want feeling like you're gaining more and more weight despite not any big changes in diet or exercise or trying to change diet and exercise and no budge with the weight that's one of the key symptoms And then you also want to be looking for feeling cold all the time, dry hair, skin and nails, hair falling out um, and irritability, depression and anxiety can also be part of thyroid disease.
1: Anyone who gets a routine annual physical and they do blood work, there's usually a thyroid panel that's done. Is that sufficient in diagnosing the problem?
4: That's a great question, Joan. So when we look for thyroid disease on blood work, we're looking for something called TSH. That's thyroid stimulating hormone. That's a hormone that's produced by the pineal gland, the gland in your brain and that should speak to your thyroid gland. When that happens, the range of TSH is around 0.5 to 2, maybe 2.5. Anything above 2.5, in my opinion, is that something might be starting to be a little bit off. The problem with that, though, is many labs, their cutoff for TSH is around somewhere between 4 to 6. And classic uh, thought in the medical system is that there's really nothing wrong with a thyroid gland until TSH goes to 10. So that's the first issue. A lot of women I've seen have had a TSH in the 3s, 4s, 5s, 6s, but no one's done anything about it because they think it's not it hasn't gotten high enough to do something about it. The second issue is that the TSH doesn't show anything about the autoimmune disorder. And again, 90% of people that have hypothyroidism are having an autoimmune condition going on in the body. And these antibodies that attack the thyroid gland can be tested in the blood but aren't often tested in conventional medicine in North America. So these two antibodies that are primarily tested in my practice are called TPO and TGAB and you can have those antibodies checked. You can ask your doctor to run those for you. If your doctor won't run them for you, you can find another practitioner be it naturopathic functional medicine doctor, another medical doctor that will run these antibodies. Because if you do have the antibodies, you, there's a lot that you can do to reduce those antibodies in your body and help your thyroid gland function a little bit more optimally.
1: Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back.
0: This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: conversations with Joan, Aunt Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. We all experience pain and we accept it as being human. Pain is such a big player in our lives that we search for ways to relieve it, which often brings more pain. According to today's guest, Guy Finley, we don't need to crumble under our pain. He says that we can learn how to use it in the right way in order to find new power and inner freedom. Guy is the best-selling author of The Secret of Letting Go and 40 other works. He's been a guest on national media and is the founder of and director of the Life of Learning Foundation. Welcome, Guy. Thanks for joining us. It is such a pleasure to have you back on the show.
5: Thank you, Joan. You know, I always enjoy our time together.
1: Well, Guy, I, I like this topic because pain is something that we all experience, and no one can escape it. But much of the time, we think that it's just a normal part of life, and we accept it. And it seems like this pain is getting deeper and deeper. If you look at statistics, suicide is up and people feel lost and they're anxious and they're depressed. So what is it that you believe is happening that's making us feel this way?
5: Well, first and foremost, I would say, honestly, that what we do is we resist the pain mm-hmm. that comes with this life because a part of us, and much to answer your question, believes that who and what we are is uh, somehow meant to to walk through this life without any suffering at all and that if we do have any pain it's because we've missed the mark or otherwise failed to become what whatever it is that we imagined we were supposed to do or to be and that idea drives us the idea of becoming something uh, special recognized known loved whatever it may be creates a, a kind of back pressure inside of us That we have no awareness of whatsoever uh, because all we know to do is to serve the idea that says we're supposed to be like this and then the pain of not hitting the mark if you will validates the pain so we're caught in a loop where we're convinced on one hand uh, of what we are meant to do the purpose of our life and can't reconcile that there's A relationship between this pain that won't go away, that we resist, and the fact that we have misunderstood the purpose of our life. So that's the main thrust of what I'm talking about.
1: So, Guy, when you're going through these difficult times, you know, negativity, those thoughts, they prevail, and then those thoughts create emotions and experience, which therefore perpetuate the thoughts. And that's the cycle. So, what advice do you offer to help someone become conscious of those thoughts and make a switch?
5: You know, this is a big a big question, Joan. Let me tell, I know we have precious few moments, so I'll run through this story very quickly. Imagine a man who goes to a third world, fourth world country. To He's an anthropologist. He wants to study open air markets and the interaction of the native people. And so he finds himself uh, on the way to one of these open air markets when over the hill comes something that astonishes him. It's it's a man uh, and a cart and a donkey, but the donkey has saddled the man and the man is pulling the cart that's full of sugar cane, chickens, and whatever produce is going to market. The anthropologist can't believe his eyes. Uh, how could a, a donkey saddle a man? So he, knowing the language he goes and he comes to the man, he says, sir, I don't understand what tradition is this? The donkey's riding you and that you're pulling the cart. And the man looks at him, smiles sheepishly, and says, well, that's the only way I could get the donkey to go to the market. The point here is that we have become saddled with the false belief that somehow or other, living and allowing negative states to tell us who we are and what we have to do by using this whip of pain to produce the results it wants, we've become a compromised race of beings. We are never meant to be subordinate to our own thoughts and feelings, let alone negative states that define and confine us. Everything, Joan, is upside down. So when you ask, what can we do? It begins with helping to be reminded of the fact that we are not meant to be saddled with useless pain, unworthy, undignified, corruptive, negative thoughts and feelings. Once we understand that, if we can feel the truth of it, then when something tries to mount us and drive us to market, so to speak, we can uh, recognize, experience the presence of that familiar pain in its pattern and understand, all right, look, you are not my boss. You don't ride me. In fact, you don't belong in my life, let alone uh, saddling me.
1: So, Guy, once we recognize that pain, then how do we turn it into power?
5: That's the beauty of what we're talking about, Joan. Do I need power if I can wake up and recognize where I'm agreeing to be made powerless? I'm going to re- I'll say it again. If If my problem is unawareness of the fact that roles have been reversed, I have become the subject of my own thoughts and feelings, and that in that subjugation I am made to suffer, in the pursuit of their ends and goals? Do I need to do anything other than become aware of how I have agreed to be made powerless? Isn't the search for power in our lives the attempt to overcome what presently overcomes us? And if we see that what we're overcome by is a mistaken relationship with our own thoughts and feelings, then the moment that awareness grows so does the powerlessness disappear.
1: So once we see pain for what it is,
5: we're released. Yes, it it is not our authority. Right. Look, when you have a toothache, God forbid, how many of us know that when we have a toothache, we're not exactly uh, uh, running a four minute mile to get to the dentist, agreed? mm mm-hmm. Maybe not for you, for me <laughs> and most people I know. Right. The minute you have some unknown pain mm-hmm. or one that promises to produce more, the last thing you want to do is with, deal with it. Right. Now, when we don't deal with our consciousness of uh, that awareness of pain, does the pain get better or worse? Well, it goes physically. deeper. That's exactly right. It is rooting itself deeper. Right. Now we're talking physically right now. And, it, and what is the power by which it is rooting itself deeper into our life, bringing more pain eventually right. than what we've avoided? Right. And the answer is something in us resists the awareness of that pain or problem. Now, take that idea and move it over to psychological or emotional pain. When we have a pain, a sense of disappointment, of being betrayed, of feeling empty, that feeling of pain is in fact a kind of messenger. It is initially a revelation in our own psyche that's trying to reach us and tell us something is wrong. We're missing the mark. Now where we go wrong is that when we feel like we're missing the mark and begin to suffer that pain, we listen to the pain tell us what to do to heal us. An example, I'm, I'm struggling because I'm working already 18 hours a day, 90 days a week. I thought it would make me free if I could get financially secure. I got some security, but I still don't feel wealthy enough. So my pain of being completely cut off from life tells me, well, guy, the way to be feel better and get rid of this pain is to do more mm-hmm. of what didn't heal you the first time. So we have to learn to be able to see and to listen to the part of us that's trying to tell us, all right, something is out of alignment here, and then have the courage to recognize that the pain that we're experiencing cannot bring an end to itself. We must discover the source of that disconnect and that lives in our own consciousness.
1: Guy, thank you so much for being here with us today. We allow pain to infiltrate every area of our life. And by listening to what you're saying and, and allowing some of your strategies into our life, we can move through it and, and really be able to feel more gratitude and, and blessings and joy. So thank you so much for being here.
5: You're very welcome and let us all agree to learn how to use this pain instead of letting it use us.
1: We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself your products and your business it can elevate you as an expert boosting your reputation but only if you make a good impression if you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered celebrated and gets invited back you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity some can cause more harm than good Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating, with listeners staying tuned in or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash mediatraining. That's joanherman.com slash training.
3: Do you suffer from ingrown toenails? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Ingrown toenails occur when the toenail starts to grow into the nail groove. This can cause significant pain and discomfort. They may become infected if left untreated. Wearing badly fitting shoes usually causes ingrown toenails. The pressure from the shoes that are too narrow at the top or too tight from the side can put extra pressure on the toenails. Other causes that include toenails that are not trimmed properly, such as cutting the toenails too short prior trauma to the feet due to activity including running. Having a family history of ingrown toenails can also increase a person's risk. There are several ways to treat and prevent ingrown toenails. Cutting the toenails straight across after a bath when the nails are soft. Avoid cutting the nails in a rounded pattern as it can increase the risk of inward growth. Wearing proper fitting shoes that do not have a pointy tip will prevent worsening of your ingrown toenail. If at-home care does not improve the condition or if your toe becomes swollen, red, or painful, please visit a podiatrist who can provide the proper care or even an If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com.
6: Hi,
1: it's Linda from Linda Mitchell Coaching and Healing. Imagine yourself remaining calm, clear-headed, stress-free, and positive, even in the midst of life's greatest challenges. Good news, there's a proven process to help you do just that. And I'm living proof. Go to lindamitchellhealing.com to take a free assessment and learn the top ways you sabotage your success and happiness and how to finally break away from those old patterns. Let's talk after your free assessment at lindamitchellhealing.com. We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She's here today to discuss predictors of divorce. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you, Joan. I'm looking forward to our conversation
1: today. Odette, you work with people to help them build stronger, more lasting relationships. And through your work, what are you seeing? Why do you believe so many marriages are ending in divorce? Well, John, there are a
6: number of factors and patterns of behavior that lead to divorce. But there is some research conducted by Dr. John Gottman and the Gottman Institute that kind of really helps to predict divorce with very surprising accuracy. Actually, it's like, I think it's over 90%. And I think that all couples engage in some of these behaviors from time to time. But what you do now and then is not what matters. What you want to look at is the consistent pattern of behavior. So some of these predictors are, for example, how you start A conversation, a difficult conversation that may lead to an argument or a conflict. And what you want to remember is the way that a topic is brought up, it sets the tone for the rest of the discussion. So if you begin the conversation in an accusatory way or in an adversarial way, then chances are that the conversation is not going to end well. Another predictor of divorce is what um, Dr. Gottman calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So it's criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. If you're communicating with your partner in this way, it's going to lead to escalate an escalation of the problem rather than some kind of resolution. So for example, you can criticize or bring to your partner attention to a behavior that you don't like or you'd like them to change and focus on the behavior and how that behavior makes you feel as opposed to identifying your partner and labeling them as something's wrong with them or attacking their character or their personality. And treating them with contempt would be an example of that would be if you speak to them with a tone of superiority or you belittle them in some way. That's actually probably the worst out of all of the predictors of divorce. So you want to watch out for that one. Also being defensive. There's two ways that people are usually defensive. One of them may be just as when you feel that your partner is attacking you and you attack back. So you kind of counterattack, and that's really not helpful. <laughs> so it doesn't lead to a resolution. And the other way that you can be defensive might be just by acting like a victim and whining and complaining and nagging. And sometimes couples engage in that defensive behavior as a way to kind of deflect responsibility, the way of not taking responsibility, if you want to look for that as well. Another one, another predictor of divorce, and it's usually a response, it's a result of that contempt or that criticism, is stonewalling. So the partner may respond by just shutting down and not responding, not engaging and acting like, they don't care. But what actually might might be happening is that perhaps the partner is just flooded with emotion and doesn't know how to react in that moment. They might, you know, get into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, and they're not able to really engage in any kind of conversations. And the last one that I think we need to really look out for is failed repair attempts. So there are going to be conflicts in any relationship, there are going to be arguments, disagreements, and how you repair that conflict is what matters. It's being able to get that conversation back on track without it escalating.
1: Odette, the communication patterns that you just described, when a person exhibits this type of behavior, is it usually confined to a marriage
6: or is that the way that
1: person will communicate with anyone?
6: That is a great question, Joan, and how we, I always say how we do one thing is how we do everything. So that type of communication pattern, it's very likely that you engage in that behavior with other people in your life, other important relationships in your life, perhaps with the people in your you know, family of origin, your parents or your siblings, and that may be where you learned that behavior in the first place. So it's very common that we are treating our children in that way as well or other family members, or even friends or coworkers,
1: so doing this inner work is important because while we 're talking about marriages it's it 's also the way you 're interpersonally relating to anyone
6: absolutely. We have to be aware and responsible for our own behavior. We have to notice it, and we have to notice how our the way that we communicate our behavior makes other people feel.
1: I always say I wish we could treat our partner. The way we would treat a new boyfriend or girlfriend post-divorce, I think we would see a different outcome in those relationships.
6: Yeah, I always say that we should continue treating our partner like boyfriend and girlfriend, just like we did back then. No matter how long you've been married, you should be excited to see each other. You should focus on their good qualities. You know, in the beginning, we kind of ignore all the negative qualities and all their faults and all those things that make them annoying. But as time goes on, we just focus on their negative qualities and we kind of minimize the positive. So we want to kind of create that habit of doing it on purpose. And one exercise that I offer to my clients is to, in their journal on a daily basis, write down at least three things that you appreciate about your partner, even if you don't feel comfortable Telling them or expressing it to them, that's okay. At first, just do it for yourself. Notice it and write it down and see if anything changes for you. You might notice some kind of shift. Odette,
1: thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. And as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacylcom odettecoronel. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself. Your products and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity. Some can cause more harm than good. Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands Thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating, with listeners staying tuned in, or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash mediatraining. That's joanherman.com slash training
0: I want to be riding my bike. But at this moment, he's fighting leukemia.
3: St. Jude Children's Research
1: Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care.
2: And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything.
1: Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
0: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.